Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Ben Rhodes is a former senior staff member in the Barack Obama administration. He's also the co-host of Pod Save the World and author of three books, including the newly released book, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. From the Berlin Wall specifically, take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, the Mao must vex, the wall must go. Build that wall. 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 There's an old saying, never let a crisis go to waste. And for some leaders around the world, the pandemic has been the crisis they've been waiting for. Pro-democracy groups say that authoritarianism was already on the rise before COVID-19. He's a killer. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why you think our country's so innocent? Hi, I'm Ben Rhodes. The existential threat to our democracy did not end with Joe Biden's election. Sorry, not sorry. Ben, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I want to talk about your book, but first I want to hear from you about your time in the Obama administration. What did you do there and what did that teach you about America and our place in the world? I spent eight years in the White House, which is unusual. It's pretty mentally and physically punishing. But I was there on Inauguration Day 2009 and left on Inauguration Day 2017 and flew with President Obama on his final flight on Air Force One. I was, for almost all that time, something called the Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications and Speech Writing, which is an absurdly long title that didn't really <laughs> explain much of what I did. But essentially, I did a bunch of things. I was a speechwriter, and I wrote all of the major speeches on foreign policy and national security. I was a communications director, essentially, for the U.S. government on foreign policy and national security issues. So what is the president saying? What is the press secretary saying? What are the rest of the government agencies saying? And then I was a member of the National Security Council. So I was in the morning intelligence briefings with the president. I was helping to formulate policy. I took on individual issues like negotiating, normalizing relations with Cuba. I was a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, which put a bit of a target on my back, too, with the Republicans. I'd say what I learned, Alyssa, broadly speaking, is both the importance of American democracy and the fragility of it, in the sense that I think we in the Obama years represented one American story. It's a story of inclusivity and tolerance and equality in an America that is trying to better itself and extend more rights and opportunity to more of its people. And then there's a different story, a reactionary story that says America is only for some people. It's only really for white people. It's only for people who have a certain view of the past. And frankly, as someone who worked on foreign policy, what I found is that same competition of stories is happening everywhere, right? It's not just America that is dealing with these issues. And that's actually what, and we'll get to the book later, but that's what drove me to write this book. It came out recently that the Biden administration has approved the sale of a $735 million in-precision guided weapons to Israel. Obviously, this has got to raise red flags, not only for us as Americans, but throughout the world. What exactly does that say about us when we're willing to sell weapons to a country during a human rights crisis? 
I think some Americans look at this situation and might think, well, what does this really implicate us? This is a fight between the Israelis and Palestinians. And the reality is that America gives almost $4 billion a year in foreign military aid to Israel, which is already you know, a fairly well-off country, which is far more than we give to any other country. So obviously, we are implicated when our largest foreign assistance partner in terms of military funding is using that in a particular way. Senator Bernie Sanders is preparing to introduce a resolution today disproving of the US sale of those precision guided weapons to Israel according to a draft obtained by the Washington Post. And he said in a statement, at a moment when US made bombs are devastating Gaza and killing women and children, we cannot simply let another huge arms sale go through without even a congressional debate. I believe that the US must help lead the way to a peaceful and prosperous future for both Israelis and Palestinians. We need to take a hard look at whether the sale of these weapons is actually helping do that or whether it is simply fueling conflict. Part of what I've tried to do, Lisa, is just speak really honestly as someone who was in national security. Sometimes the discussion around these issues excludes people because it's like, oh, you're not going to understand this or we use a certain jargon that you can understand. I think this is a pretty simple situation where we give several billion dollars a year in this assistance to Israel, even though the Israeli government under Netanyahu has increasingly taken positions and done things that the United States does not support. There's a tension in that that really wasn't there 20 years ago when you had an Israeli government trying to broker peace with the Palestinians. And so when people say, well, why are you, you know, walking away from our support for Israel? I don't think that's the case. I think it's this Israeli government has walked away from the things that we thought we were working for together, which included two states for two people, Israel and Palestine living next to each other in peace and security. And I think that the more that happens, the more we should be raising questions about where is this assistance going? Are there restrictions that we can put on this assistance to make sure that it's not being used in strikes that could harm civilians in Gaza or being used to annex Palestinian land in the West Bank? These are the debates that as difficult and painful as they are, and especially for people who care about and love Israel, these are debates I think that are going to be happening increasingly, certainly in the Democratic Party and I think more broadly in the United States. I feel like because we're in such a divisive time now that the divisiveness even in this country, and I also think a lot of this has to do with the rise in anti-Semitism right now in the country. It is such a fragile topic to talk about. And I think it's really important for people on social media, people who are activists and advocates to be able to say, you know what, this is a complicated issue. And we might not understand the whole inner workings of it, but we do know that babies are dying and children are dying, and that is not okay. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised the anti-Semitism issue, because so often when you criticize Israeli policy, there are some people on the right who try to equate any criticism of the Israeli government with being anti-Semite. The Anti-Defamation League has put out disturbing new data showing a rise in online and real-world incidents of anti-Semitism in the U.S. since this recent outbreak of violence between Israel and Hamas. There is a crisis of anti-Semitism around the world, but I think it's very important for us to be clear that the biggest danger is coming from the far-right politics that we see in the world. If you look in this country, the shooting, the tragic shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pennsylvania, targeting Jews, was not about Israel. It was about somebody who didn't like that that synagogue was supporting refugees. You see these conspiracy theories about George Soros. You see the old tropes about Jews being these globalists who want to open our borders and things like that. That's part of this white nationalist movement that we have here. And again, it was so interesting to me I had this conversation with someone in Hungary for my book where you have a right-wing prime minister who has embraced 
Bibi Netanyahu. And what's weird about it is that prime minister, Viktor Orban, traffics in a lot of anti-Semitic tropes, right? He basically has a whole machinery around saying that George Soros is trying to control events everywhere. And I was talking to a Hungarian Jew who was saying to me, like, look, I get that Israel wants to have as many friends as it can, but this trend in the world of ethno-nationalism is ultimately bad for the Jewish people. So I think it's important that we, yes, understand that some criticism of Israel can bleed into anti-Semitism, absolutely, and there should be no tolerance for that. But let's be clear about where the biggest threats are coming in terms of anti-Semitism. They're coming from far-right white supremacy, which is traditionally where the most virulent and dangerous anti-Semitism has come from, particularly in the U.S. and Europe. Can I just say that you're amazing? And this is basically the clearest conversation I've had on this topic, because we all have people that this is affecting. My best friend is Palestinian. I feel like he is hurting in a way I've never seen him hurt before. And so it is very hard for me to have conversations with him and also with my friends who have ties to Israel. And I hope we could get to this place where we can talk about things again without it being so hurtful. I get that, Alyssa. And I I guess here's what I'd say about that. First, there's some things that are complicated, like how you would draw the borders of a Palestinian state, how you would assure Israel's security while assuring the Palestinians have a viable state. These are very complicated things. It is not complicated that children should not be killed with bombs in Gaza. It's not complicated, obviously, that you would not want rockets fired indiscriminately into Israel. These are not complicated things. I have friends who are Palestinian, I have friends who are Israeli. And what I'm constantly struck by is that if they could work it out with each other, their leaders have been incapable of doing this. I have a lot greater confidence, including having been in government for eight years, in people around the world often than in political leadership around the world. And if you look at this too, obviously, Supremacy of all kinds leads to this kind of darkness, because when you see, obviously, Hamas, an Islamist organization that is supremacist in the fact that they want to push all Jews out of the land and claim it for themselves, I think we also have to recognize that when you see Israeli settlers seeking to literally evict Palestinians from their homes or dehumanizing Palestinians with their rhetoric, that is supremacy too. Supremacy can infect all of us, and it has, right? In this country, we're not perfect. I mean, I often say to people, I've been far more critical of my own government (laughs) than any foreign government, so I don't want to suggest we're immune to this. I think the challenge for people, for citizens, for people who are increasingly aware of these negative trends in the world that just seem to be pulling us back into these dark currents from history of supremacy, whatever kind it is, we have to have solidarity with one another. I truly believe there are more of us than them. There are more people that are of goodwill and can see humanity in one another despite their ethnicity, their religion, what side of a debate they're on. But we have to be as awake and as connected and as activated as I think, unfortunately, the far right has been around the world in recent years. Thank you for that. So we're going to move on now. So I want to talk about the 2016 election. 
basically during the primary and into the election, Trump barreled through the competition by basically lying and pushing an authoritarianism message. What was it like to watch that fucking happening from the inside of the White House? What was so terrifying to me about it, Alyssa, is that I had seen this building for eight years, right? Trump didn't come out of nowhere. And I trace this in my book, but like the Tea Party movement, if you go back to that and you look at the people elected in the Tea Party yelling, take our country back, they weren't talking about deficits. <laughs> there was a racialized component to that. There was a sense of the demography of the country changing. The Tea Party movement stormed into American politics in 2010, touting a platform of smaller government, individual freedoms, and greater personal responsibility. Its message has moved many Republicans farther to the right and changed the national debate. You also saw the growth of this right-wing media ecosystem. Fox News, talk radio, Breitbart, Facebook, kind of turbocharging right-wing conspiracy theory. I lived that in the Obama years, the kind of virulent opposition to anything Obama did, despite the fact that Obama is not exactly a polarizing human being. And so by the time Trump comes along, it's horrifying because what you're seeing in Trump is all of those negative dark trends, birtherism, racism, conspiracy theory, xenophobia, belligerence, dishonesty, it all gets rolled up into this one candidacy. And so I thought at the time that it was incredibly logical that Trump was the front runner from the moment he came down the escalator at Trump Tower because he was the Republican Party. None of these other people were the party that I had experienced in government for seven years. So I was right in seeing that. I was wrong about one thing and one big thing, right, which a lot of us were. I remember sitting with President Obama in the Oval Office right around the time Trump was sewing up the nomination and saying, you know, I'd watched Trump the night before and thought to myself, this could be a very scary, dangerous kind of authoritarian message in slightly more competent hands. I just thought Trump was such a buffoon that I didn't think he could get over the goal line, which he obviously could. But again, everything about it was traumatizing. Seeing the opposite of everything you believed you stood for getting elected, knowing how hard we'd worked for eight years. I can't even imagine. The book that I just wrote is my therapy, you know, was going Way in search to get of it how, out. how the fuck did this happen? That this guy could become president of the United States? And why does this seem to be happening, by the way, in lots of places around the world? It was the biggest body blow I've ever received, certainly in my public life. We were all feeling that as outsiders. I can't imagine what you were feeling on the inside, like someone that had been a part of something that felt positive and at the very least democratic. Well, I want to talk about your new book, After the Fall, and you talk about the fall of the Berlin Wall as the pinnacle of freedom in modern history. What did you mean by that? I kind of went in search of the answer to this question of how did things go so wrong here and everywhere? Why is democracy so under threat and what can we do about that? I wanted to look in different places because I actually think you can learn something about America by looking at other places, in part because people are using the same playbook everywhere. And what I found is this story very much began everywhere with the end of the Cold War. And how I'd sum it up is that throughout the Cold War, and I remember this growing up, Alyssa, and you and I are similar in age, like that was part of our national identity. What defined us as Americans, right, is that we were the leader of the free world. We were on one side, the Soviets were on the other side. Once that kind of national purpose was removed, that's kind of when the story begins of everything that happened next. And what I found in a lot of places is that the speed of globalization, the speed at which capitalism expanding, technology is exploding, created all this opportunity, but it also created kind of a crisis and meaning for people everywhere. Who am I? What do I belong to? Who's in my tribe? And that a lot of these politicians 
from Vladimir Putin to Donald Trump to Orban, who I look at in Hungary, and I look at Xi Jinping in China. One thing they all had in common is they offer people belonging. You're on this team. And those people are on the other team. And I think that is a 30-year story. I think that basically the nationalists have capitalized on people's sense of dislocation, on people's sense of disappointment, that things didn't turn out better in their respective countries, by offering this very traditional identity, the nationalist team that you're on, usually the ethno-nationalist team that you're on. And it's always set against the other side. Ben Shapiro is uh, currently having his moment in the sun. He's the new favorite commentator among young conservatives. Um, here's what he said on Christmas. I wanted to share this with everybody. Merry Christmas, and thank God America is a nation founded on Judeo-Christian ideals. May that truth never change. And for whatever reason, those of us who don't think like that have found ourselves increasingly on the other end of this authoritarianism. And I feel like people are understanding that now and are pushing back. And and the last election in America is a demonstration of that. But there's a lot more work to be done. So do you think that this is how we got from being the pinnacle of freedom in modern history to not only a global surge in authoritarianism, but to an American surge? There are kind of two layers to this. The first is, I look at Hungary because it's just fascinating. It's like in miniature what happened here. I said to a guy when I was traveling after the election, hey, how did you go from being a democracy to basically this authoritarian system under this guy, Orban, who got elected in 2010? And he said, well, it's simple. Orban won political power through right-wing populism after the financial crisis. Then he redrew the parliamentary districts. He packed the courts with right-wing judges. He took over the media and created a right-wing propaganda machinery. He enriched cronies who then financed his politics. And the guy could have been describing what the Republican Party's done yep. in the last 10 years. And he wraps it all up in a nationalist message that says, you are the real Hungarians and immigrants and Muslims and Jews and anybody else are on the other team. And I'm thinking, well, this is interesting because this guy literally could have been describing America. Why is the same thing happening everywhere? And when I peel the back, I couldn't help but confront the reality that some of this was things that America had done, that the kind of unbridled, unregulated capitalism that resulted in the financial collapse in 2008 had made a lot of people start to question the whole deal. Like, is this working? Like, is this kind of American capitalism, globalization, a good thing for us? Or should I listen to a guy like Orban who's telling me I should be a real Hungarian here? The post 9-11 wars morphed into not just, I think, this overreach with the Iraq war, but with this kind of us versus them view that it started as Muslim terrorists, but could easily become the black president or the people trying to cross our southern border. Once you unleash that kind of us versus them feeling in people, it can lead to dark places. And then obviously with social media, which we all thought was a huge source of empowerment, I had to confront how the social media platforms that America created had become these kind of perfect tools of disinformation and surveillance for people like Putin and people like Xi Jinping. And it was interesting for me as a foreign policy guy, What's most important is not our foreign policy. It's who we are at home. (laughs) It's can we fix these problems here? That's the most important thing we can do for ourselves and for the world. Before we go further, I think it might be helpful to our listeners if you could just give a quick primer on authoritarianism, populism, and nationalism and how they all just intersect. It's a great question. I'm happy to do it because I passionately want people to read this book, not just because I wrote it, but because I tried to make it as accessible. This is not some wonky thing. This is about like, hey, this is what we're all living through and we need to understand it. And so authoritarianism, plain and simple, is just one person or party seeking to create a system that serves them in which they won't share power. There's not compromise. It's about 
maintaining control. I think nationalism, I would define as marshalling usually an ethnic or religious view of what a nation is and saying that's who we are. It's not a set of ideals like our founding documents. It's more about we are the Hungarians or we are the true Americans. And nationalism can be directed in positive ways sometimes, right? In America, sometimes we say we have this civic nationalism and we're going to go to the moon with that. But it can be directed in negative ways too in saying these other people are not part of our nationalism. They are going to be put down. And then populism, I think, is just basically appealing to people's grievances. That can be positive too. It can be, hey, people want to get paid a minimum wage, right? That's populism. But so is saying to people, you know what, the reason you're suffering is because of these brown people who are trying to come across the border. And so what we've seen in recent years is this blending of authoritarianism and nationalism and populism, where what the populism does is it appeals to grievances. The very reverse, the obverse of everything conservatism stands for is populism. Populism means the direct translation of majority passion not just ideas, majority passion, into governance. The ultimate populist moment was Donald Trump. I said it, you see. It's not Voldemort. Uh, the, the, the ultimate direct translation of passion into politics is Trump at the Cleveland Convention, only I can fix it. Usually in this country, right-wing populism is white people's grievances about changing demographics, about lack of opportunity. And some of it may be legitimate, like opportunity and jobs are going away. But instead of channeling that in a constructive direction, it's channeled to this is going away because of these people over here who look different than you. And so you get people who might be angry about something legitimate, like the financial crisis and why did these banks get bailed out? Instead of having them be mad at the banks, you distract them to the immigrants or the Muslims or whatever convenient target. That's the populism. The nationalism then takes that and says, this is about making America great again. This is about the fact that America used to be a great country, right? When these other people didn't have power or these other people weren't threatening your livelihoods. We have to make America great again. And then the authoritarianism, though, is the ultimate purpose because the people who, like Trump who engage in this are not seeking to solve these people's problems. They're seeking to make those people mad enough that they'll give all the power to the authoritarian. And so that's how these things come together. What feels like to the people on the other end of it, populism, what feels like someone's finally speaking to my grievances, someone's finally saying I'm a part of the team, is then used to make sure that a very certain number of people have all the political power in the country. And we just lived through that in this country, and people are living through that all over the world. I want to talk about other places in the world because clearly we saw this path from liberalism and hope to deeply conservative authoritarianism. Where else in the world is this happening? So I want people to get a sense of how shared the story is, because the point I try to tell is it's all kind of one story. And so I think one easy way to look at that is Russia. For this book, I spent a lot of time talking to Russians, including Alexei Navalny, who people have probably heard about being poisoned and imprisoned almost on the verge of death because he opposed Vladimir Putin. And the story they basically tell is that after the Cold War, in the 1990s, you had these mass sell-offs, right, where basically the government used to own everything. It was a communist country, and it was basically given away to a bunch of billionaires. And everybody was pissed about it. Everybody could see that the deal was rigged, and things weren't getting better for Russians, and they were getting better for these handful of billionaires. But Vladimir Putin comes along and does something very clever. 
On the one hand, he taps into that sense of anger and grievance. See, this is what democracy leads to. This is what capitalism leads to. It just enriches a bunch of corrupt people. While at the same time, Putin himself was making sure that the people who were getting the money were his people, his billionaires. And so what he did is he essentially created this playbook where a leader comes along and calls out what appears to be rigged in the system. The little guy's getting screwed and somebody else is getting rich. And he uses it to justify all manner of policies, right? Like redrawing parliamentary districts in Russia. So his party's getting elected, shutting down civil society, shutting down independent media, because we have to do this in order to respond to the grievances of the people to the point that Putin's the only guy in charge. And then what does he have to do? He has to keep the people angry and motivated. What do you do when you need to do that? Maybe you go to war in neighboring Georgia or neighboring Ukraine. You constantly puff up the threat coming from abroad, from the United States or from somewhere else, so that this kind of nationalism, hyper-nationalism is used to protect this authoritarian playbook that you've created. And what I've found in looking at the world is you have these different flavors of the same thing happening everywhere. So in Russia, it's this cult of personality around Putin. In the United States, I think it's not Trumpism alone. It's the Republican Party kind of making this deal with the devil to embrace this kind of authoritarian playbook justified by this nationalism. And then very importantly, in China, you have the emerging superpower, which basically never even made any pretense of having a democracy. And what they're saying is, hey, this just works better. Don't have democracy because, look, we're growing, we're getting rich. And democracy is inefficient and it's messy. Better to just entrust all the power to one political party like us and we'll get the job done. And what's scary when I looked into China and talked to people there is technology could allow them to perfect a certain kind of authoritarianism for reasons we can get into. But basically, if you control the entire internet in your country, you can read anything anybody says, you have control or access to all their data. Let's just say if you give that to an authoritarian system, there's no limit on how they can try to shape how people live and even think. That's just brutal. There's hope, which is my whole book was talking to oppositionists. And like the hope is that people don't want to live like that. I tell the story of the Hong Kong protest, which again failed, but I think they should be seen as a warning more than anything else. On a Hong Kong side street, the police were still chasing the protesters. The officers jumping out of vans to tackle whoever they could catch. In some cases, violently. Mayhem keeping its momentum. The Chinese Communist Party would say, well, this is the model that people want. Hong Kong is this one place in the world where people could opt into China or they could kind of opt out. And the whole city rose up and protested. People want to live with freedom. There's a universality to that that I truly passionately believe in. And I think the good news in the last decade is we're having this conversation, Alyssa. Like, we would never have had this conversation even five years ago. I find that people are having a version of this everywhere. Why does this feel like it's moving in the wrong direction? And generationally, the people who are least likely to sign on to this are young people. And so my hope is that young people everywhere, they're the ones who are ultimately going to determine this. And this is not what they want. They're more tolerant. They're more inclusive. And they see what's going on. So I'm going to switch gears for a second and ask you what seems like a super simple question, but I'm interested to hear your answer. What does it mean to be an American right now? You ask the best possible question. The simplest question is usually the best question, right? Because what's so interesting to me about this is I set out to write this book that might seem complicated to people, but again, I urge you, if you read it, it's a personal journey more than a work of wonky analysis. And what I found is I was trying to figure out what was going on around the world is, hey, actually the most important question is the one you just asked, what does it mean to be an American? Because before we can 
fix any of this other stuff I'm talking about. We have to answer that question for ourselves. I believe what it means to be an American is that we are a country made up of people from everywhere. We all came from someplace else except indigenous people here. And we are an experiment as to whether that can work. Can there be a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy made up of people from everywhere? And that works. And the reason that's so important to us is because if that can work here, then it can work in the world. If that idea can succeed here in America, this is why people around the world watch what happens here so closely. It can work in other places. I think that's a contested idea, though. I think maybe Republicans would occasionally pay lip service to that. But if you look at Make America Great Again, America First, all this stuff, that is the opposite story. That is a story that says America is for some people, not others. That's always been the case in our history. We've always had two stories. We had a Declaration of Independence that said all men are created equal, written by a guy who owns slaves. So we've always had this contradiction inside ourselves. But man, we really have to resolve it now. Because the reason the temperature has gone up so high is because people can feel the stakes of this debate, particularly as America is moving towards being a majority non-white country. What do you think is going to happen in the coming years? You write that no one election can undo the harm that has been done. But does the 2020 election help? Oh, yeah. I don't know where we would be after four more years of Trump. One of the things that I... One of the benefits of working on foreign policy, which can seem disconnected from America, is actually you can see this can happen anywhere, right? So when I saw January 6th insurrection, I've seen that happen in other countries. I think that's what was so terrifying, as we all have. But it was happening here. So we were like, what is happening? And that's the point is it can happen. All of it can happen here. All of it. Whatever the worst is, it can happen here. It can happen anywhere because there are human beings everywhere. We're all human. We're embedded with the same strengths and weaknesses here. And so we averted catastrophe. But the reality is, if you study how this authoritarian playbook has been used abroad, it's not like when the Republicans lost an election, they were going to say, you know what, this didn't work out, we're done with this. And lo and behold, sure enough, they're trying to rewrite the voting laws across this country so that they can stay in power. They're literally evicting people from their party for just stating the obvious fact that the election wasn't stolen, right? This is not a party that is in any way rehabilitating itself. We have to recognize that we are going to live for some time now in this country in a situation in which one major political party is fundamentally disinterested in democracy. And in fact, their whole agenda is writing the rules so that it is no longer a democracy. So that because they have such control over the way in which people vote, over who's on the courts, that they have essentially veto over anything that happens in this country. And that, lo and behold, if they get a Trump in there again, then they can really go to work here. So we're not out of the woods here because, like it or not, like every two years that there's a national election in this country, this danger is very present. Now, I've never aligned or been aligned or identified as a Republican because I just have liberal values. I was raised in a liberal household. But when I think about how different the Republican Party is just in my lifetime, it feels like there was a distinct line that was crossed that none of us are really aware of, or maybe you are aware of, where it was like, you know what, we're doing this now and nothing is going to stop us. 
It seems like there was no gray or I'm sure there was lead up to this, but it seems so sudden to me. And also, by the way, it seems sudden to me as someone who has been campaigning for candidates since 2000. I can't imagine how it felt to the person that was just living without being aware of what's going on politically around them. It feels like there was a line that was crossed that they're all in cahoots with. (laughs) Except for a chosen few, obviously, like Liz Cheney. We've got breaking news on Capitol Hill. Let's go back to Garrett Haig. Garrett? Stephanie, just like that, it's over. The House Republican Conference had a voice vote. That means no recorded total and has ousted Liz Cheney from her number three position within the conference. They will not know uh, the vote totals here. It's uh, something of a, one could say, an elegant way to avoid embarrassing either the leadership or Cheney with vote totals. She spoke to cameras briefly afterwards, uh, remarks similar to what she said in front of the conference. Uh, And now we expect to see her continue on with what she has promised to do, which is try to lead the Republican Party away from Donald Trump. But she will be doing it from the outside, no longer a member of House leadership officially. Mitt Romney and whoever else has been brave enough to come forward against this new GOP. But is it power? First of all, I think it's important for us to say, like, I wish this wasn't the case. Look, I wrote speeches for the 2008 Obama campaign about wanting the nation to come together. Like, I don't want to be this partisan a Democrat, but I feel like we are compelled to call this out. Again, this is really the question I was setting out to answer in this book, which is the first thing I'd say to you is that political parties are people. There's not like a Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. It's the people who are in elective office and people who are making decisions. And my father was an old line Republican. He's since left the party. But after the Tea Party election in 2010, these were different people. These were not the Republicans that I disagreed with, but Jim Baker and the Bush family. And these were new people. These people, right, what are they after? Is it white supremacy? Is it power? Is it money? What is it that made them go, oh, I think the whole story amounts to, if you want to distill it, the people who are giving expression to a certain kind of white grievances that have been building for a long time, cynically allied with powerful interests that wanted to maintain their power. I walk people through the Tea Party in the book. Basically, in the Tea Party, what you have is, it's insane to look back on, but you had all these kind of spontaneous demonstrations of almost exclusively white people around the country yelling, take our country back, who are angry about, I think on the one hand, a financial crisis that really did screw them. And on the other hand, there's this sense of racialized concern about the fact that the guy who just got elected is black and the demography of the country is changing around me. So you have this kind of white grievance that if you look at Fox News and you look at talk radio, if you look at the people, I mean, Alyssa, you should know this as someone who's been such a successful and important entertainer. Rush Limbaugh knew his audience, people who knew there's a white grievance out there that is very powerful. And then who funded the Tea Party? It was the Koch brothers. They're the ones who literally funded and set up organizations to go around and organize rallies and all this stuff and put an infrastructure around it. And oh, by the way, the same year, Citizens United has passed removing any constraints on money in politics. So the Kochs are suddenly pumping all this money into politics. So to simplify it, you've got a bunch of cynical billionaires who want to stay billionaires and don't want to be regulated and don't want to pay taxes, paying for the kind of turbocharging of white grievance in this country. And if you want to watch who the Republican Party is today, I would say don't look at any politician, watch Fox, because Fox viewers are basically now the Republican Party. 
I mean, that's what happened when Donald Trump became the nominee. And so the simplest answer to that is that you had a kind of building sense of white grievance that was turbocharged after the financial crisis in the Obama election. And then you had people cynically pouring money onto that fire like gasoline, and then they lost control of it. And now, instead of riding the back of this tiger, they're all inside. And anybody who wants to have any future in Republican politics has to basically sign on to the craziest shit that is in this massive infrastructure that they've built with Fox and talk radio and the rest of it. It just seems like they all cross this line of going from, I know my audience and believe me, my audience certainly doesn't want me talking about politics. They'd rather talk about Charmed, but there's still like a moral obligation that I feel to use my voice in a way to affect positive change. So there has to be a line that's crossed at some point where people are like, you know what? Fuck everybody. I'm just going to go down this path and it's going to be really disruptive and it's going to help the party that's more disruptive and the greed and the white supremacy and fuck it. I don't care because I've been given this choice now and this is what I'm going to do with it. The psychology behind it, not just as a party, but as these individual, there's a very different mindset that someone like Liz Cheney has versus someone like Jim Jordan. They each made a choice. (laughs) And so that's the part that's so perplexing to me is that this choice was made to embody and represent this party that is so hurtful to our democracy. Let me ask you this. In 2021, how are Americans seen in the rest of the world? And what does that say about us? I think that the most important thing that people have to understand about that, Alyssa, is that as someone who traveled a lot, spent basically the Trump years getting out of this country as much as I could at times, but in part because I wanted to learn about things, the thing you would constantly hear, and you still hear, is that what worried people so much around the world was not the fact that Donald Trump was president. It was the fact that we had elected Donald Trump president. The European public has long been skeptical of Donald Trump and his America first approach. But does that mean they'd welcome his challenger, Joe Biden? We've been sampling opinion on the streets of Paris. I would be quite frightened of another election if if Trump got in. Yes, indeed. He's he's so unstable. He's so uh, vehement. He's so... uh, uh, you know, his, his tweets, it's so stupid, he's ridiculous, it's puerile, it's, uh, it's not a president. How could you do that? And if you could do that once, you could do it again. And America was supposed to be different. America was supposed to be the place where this kind of thing didn't happen. And so I think that the fascinating thing is that they're not sure what to make of us anymore. Even if they disagreed with our foreign policy or this policy or that, there was something about America that seemed safe and democratic. I think there's opportunity in that, though. I'll tell you what the opportunity is. If if we can come out of this, if we can show that we can beat this back, then I think that matters to people around the world. Then they might say to themselves, well, it turned out the Americans were just like the rest of us. They could have the corrupt autocrat with the son-in-law down the hall, but they dealt with it. And maybe that means so can we. So people around the world, they're rooting for us to get this right. They care about what happens here. I do want to say one thing that is actually connected, Alyssa, about Charmed in a way, which is that the other thing that the other side of this debate wants, whether it's the Republican Party here or Vladimir Putin in Russia or Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong, apathy, cynicism. It's not worth it. Just the world is what it is. And the whole game is rigged. And both sides are corrupt. And this and that and the other. So just shut up and be an mm-hmm, actress mm-hmm. or- Stay in your lane. Be a cog in whatever machine you're in. That's the whole play. <laughs> like That's the actual playbook, right? It's just make sure that people think it's so demoralizing to speak out that they don't. And so people around the world are also looking to America. And the most hopeful thing they saw is not 
necessarily Joe Biden win the election. And I say that as someone who obviously admires Joe Biden win the election. What people that I talked to around the world were so inspired by is like how many Americans worked their asses off to get that done. It was almost helpful in a way that Joe Biden, and I say this respectfully, but he wasn't like some rocket star, you know, like John F. Kennedy or even Barack Obama, the super charismatic savior. My parents shared not only an improbable love, they shared an abiding faith in the possibilities of this nation. I stand here knowing that my story is part of the larger American story, that I owe a debt to all of those who came before me, and that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. He was a good man, but he needed the support of a lot of people, and a lot of people who were willing to speak up and do things that they hadn't done before and get engaged politically in a way they hadn't done before. And people around the world saw that, and that gave them a lot of hope that it wasn't just Joe Biden that won on Election Day. It was those Americans. That's a nice sentiment. I like it. In your dream outcome, what actions do we, as Americans, take today that will shape who we become in the future? And to you, what does that future look like? Working backwards, I think the future that we want is a multiracial, multiethnic democracy in which all people are treated equally that is capable of solving big problems like dealing with climate change, like giving people opportunity. That's what we want. So how do we get there and what can people do? I mean, first of all, I think people can get involved in any way. Some people will run for office. Some people will volunteer on campaigns. But some people will just make their piece of their community more just and inclusive, or some people who have a voice will use it from time to time to speak out on, on things. What I found around the world is this sense of local grassroots building up. That's when opposition movements succeed. And again, that doesn't mean that everybody has to call your member of Congress every day, although people should do that sometimes. It means just like caring about what's happening in your community and being activated. Because if people are activated, like I said, if everybody in this country voted, Alyssa, like the elections would not be close at all if you look at what people actually believe in. So my ask and hope for people is to believe in the reality of what I talk about when I talk about a multiracial, multiethnic democracy that can solve problems and recognize that you have agency on that. Every choice you make, everything you do, not just the political ones, but even just how you go about navigating your own communities can be in service of that goal. But once you succumb to cynicism or apathy or it's not worth it, that's just holding the door open to the January 6th mob. And it's what they want. What gives you hope? 100% just young people. You remember when we were those young people, Ben? I know. I know. We were the people that older people talked about. <laughs> Yeah, I do. I mean, obviously, you were part of my life as a young person. And then I was on that 08 Obama campaign. I feel bad about that, too, by the way. Like, we got everybody's hopes up at the 08 campaign. But Obama said something to me that I put in the book to calm me down a little bit. He's like, this plays out every generation, a version of this, right? The same competition of stories, who we are, whether young people get involved or not. The stakes are particularly high now, but they've been really high before. They were high in the civil rights movement. They were high in World War II, certainly. They were high in the Cold War. So I think we can all chill out and let ourselves off the hook a little bit to say we're just watching a version of the same conflict that play out every generation. This is just the flavor of it now. But I'll tell you what has changed, because people talk about the downsides of globalization, right? That people have lost a sense of identity. I talked about these things earlier. The kind of positive side, and to sound like a globalist, but you go to Hong Kong, you talk to young people from Russia, you talk to young people from Hungary, you talk to young people from India, Brazil, they have a lot more in common with each other than they do with aging 
supremacists. That's not to say there aren't some young people who take that path too, but what gives me hope is that I think that young people naturally, but this generation in particular, understand the stakes and understand that they have agency and that they don't have to put up with this shit. I mean, that's why Greta Thunberg is a more eloquent spokesperson on the climate than anyone who could be who's over the age of 21, because she can look at the older generation be like, just you guys are fucking it up and we're not going to put up with that anymore. And I think that mentality, you see that all over the world now. It's true. And you see it in every issue. These citizen activists that rise to the top. Ben Rhodes, you give me hope. So thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. And I really loved your book. As the seeds of World War II were starting to grow, author Sinclair Lewis imagined a fictional future in which America, too, could fairly easily fall to fascism. He wrote of a politician who rose to the presidency by promising the nation great economic reform, a return to traditional patriotic values. He was a politician who vowed to save the country from welfare fraud, sex, crime, and a liberal media. And yeah, I know what you're thinking, but this really was all in Lewis's book. It Can Happen Here, which was written 80 years ago, and which ends with the president all but ending democracy in favor of an authoritarian regime of his own, it was meant to be a warning of just how fragile American democracy may be. When you take responsibility for being the leader of the world, you have to take responsibilities for your failures to lead. America has failed spectacularly in many of the ways we led over the last several decades. We've enabled dictators and then gone to war with them. We've provided military aid to nations which went on to use military force against civilians. We've propped up authoritarians because it was politically advantageous to do so. It's no wonder those chickens came home to roost, huh? We've seen the tactics we deployed globally take root here at home, and it's destroying us. We need to root out authoritarianism wherever we find it in our nation. We need to take this opportunity to redefine what it means to be American. We need to be a better people with a kinder take on the world. If we are to lead abroad, we need to lead at home. If not, we don't deserve to lead at all. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 